The last thing I had this morning was one of those wonderful glazed croissants from Cakes and Pastries that had the chocolate cream in it, and it was wonderful, but it also made me thirsty. And I don't want to think about what it did to my blood sugar. We are continuing our series this morning on Galatians. We are through chapter 1 of Galatians, and we're taking on all of chapter 2 this morning. As we talked about last week, these first two chapters of Galatians um, is Paul teaching through autobiography. He's done this through chapter 1 as he's told his story about um, who he is and who he was and who he has come to be in Christ. And in the process, he has taught this central gospel message that God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. Let me repeat that in case you need to hear it this morning. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. This is partially what Paul means when he talks about freedom. And freedom is a word we're going to hear a lot in the book of Galatians. It is freeing to know that God's love and delight in us is not dependent on us getting it all right. Because, and this may be a shock to you, you cannot get it all right. And so it's freeing to know that, that God's love for us, that God's delight in us, that God's, God's welcoming of us is not dependent on us being perfect. Because we cannot be. There's a flip side to this, however... The flip side is this. While it may be freeing to know that we don't have to get it all right and God will still love us, the flip side of it is the the horrible feeling that we get when we realize, what do you mean I can't do anything to please God? That's a scary feeling. It may even be feel to you disempowering to know that there is nothing that you can do that will increase God's delight in you. There is nothing that you can do that will increase God's love for you. You know, it can feel not so great to know that we are that wretched. We don't use that word a lot. We sing it in Amazing Grace, God saved a wretch like me, but we don't use it a lot to describe ourselves anymore, do we? But it can feel not so great to know that we are that wretched, that sinful, that broken, that there is not anything that we can do on our own to please God. That's harsh. I fully believe that that is one of the main reasons that people continue to reject the gospel. Because it would require them to admit and acknowledge to themselves that they are that wretched. And so we have this this tension, this, this dilemma, this question. If God's pleasure in me is not rooted in my performance for him, which is freeing, how and I can do nothing to please him. How can I please him? How can I please God? 
And it's this question, this dilemma that Paul takes up in chapter 2. He's going to continue to use autobiography to teach us. And so we are in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And I will ask that you will stand with me as we read God's word together, if you are willing and able. Also recognizing that this is an extended passage of scripture. So if you wish not to stand or if you wish to sit halfway through, that's okay. So if you would stand with me if you're willing and able. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. What an image. Infiltration of the ranks to spy. But we did not give up and submit to these people, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, then is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tear down, show me, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For though the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, 
For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. God, my prayer for us this morning is that as we open your word and as we study it, that we would be captivated by your grace, that we would be, that we would be enthralled by your mercy, by your righteousness, by your holiness, that we would seek to live by faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory alone. And so, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So what Paul does here in chapter 2 is he uses these stories from his life to paint three pictures. To paint three pictures on how we answer that question, if God's pleasure in me is not rooted in my performance for him, how then can I please God? And so Paul presents three pictures. The first picture is the picture of legalism. That's how some folks try and answer that question. We talked a lot about legalism uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, but, but for the purpose of today, let's define legalism. Let's have in our brain today this definition. Legalism is right behavior with wrong belief. Legalism is right behavior with wrong belief. To paint this picture, um, Paul tells the story about going down to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to meet the apostles. Uh, There are some questions as to when exactly this meeting uh, takes place, Um, and it sort of depends on when you think Galatians was written um, as to how you might answer that question. As we talked about the first week, there are some who believe that Galatians was written uh, just after the Jerusalem council that we see in Acts 15, where they sort of get together and answer this question once and for all about whether or not one has to follow the law in order to be a follower of Jesus. Um, And there are some who believe that this book was written just prior to that council. The idea being that if it was written after that council, there wouldn't really be a need to write much of a letter because the council had settled the question. And Paul would reference the council in his letter. And he doesn't do that. And so I think that this event where he goes down to Jerusalem, and it also tells us that he goes privately, and we know the Jerusalem council isn't private, but I believe that this happens prior to the council that we see in Acts 15. We see Paul coming down to this sort of private meeting with the apostles, and really what he's doing is he's placing himself to a certain degree, he's placing himself under their authority their eldership. He's saying, he's saying, guys, this is the gospel that I'm preaching and I want to come and tell you what I'm preaching and make sure that we're on the same page. You remember, and Paul has talked about the fact that people had some issues with him because of who he had been, because he had been a great persecutor of the church, because he had not followed Jesus before the crucifixion and resurrection, that people had questions about Paul and about Paul's teaching. And so Paul wants to sort of settle that. And he wants to go to the apostles and say, here's what I'm doing. We're on the same page, right? But he also goes for another reason. He goes 
Because he wants to contend for the gospel that he's preaching. Because these, what is listed, right, as false brothers have infiltrated the church. Again, man, that, what an awesome, awesome image. One of my favorite, very not well-known figures from the American Revolution is a man who comes to be known by, is by the name James Lafayette. Um, one of those th- things, that weirdly in life, I can say, I know James Lafayette. James Lafayette is a friend of mine because our friend of ours does portray him at Colonial Williamsburg. James was an enslaved man who um, was loaned to the Marquis de Lafayette by his owner. And Lafayette recognizes that James is incredibly bright, incredibly smart, and incredibly capable. And so Lafayette, who at this point is running Washington's intelligence operation, recruits James to be a spy. And so James runs away to the British lines at Yorktown. And he says, I'll work for you. I'll dig your entrenchments. I'll I'll do anything you want me to do because I don't believe in this cause. And so they do. They welcome him in and he digs the entrenchments. And then he goes back to Washington and Lafayette and tells them where all of the guns are, where where everything is. He He was a false worker who infiltrated the British lines and who eventually was granted his freedom by the House of Delegates because of his actions. But this is what's happened. This is what's happened in Jerusalem. These false brothers have come in to infiltrate and spy on the freedom that they have. And Paul knows this. And so he's come down and he brings two people with him because he wants to force the question. He brings Barnabas, who is a Jew, who was born a Jew, and he brings Titus, who was born a Greek, born a Gentile. He's a convert from paganism. Paul wants to force the question. He wants to get a showdown. He wants to figure out where people are going to fall. Are people going to fall on a gospel of Jesus alone, or are they going to fall on the side of a gospel that's Jesus plus? Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus circumcision. He wants the apostles on record that the gospel that he has been preaching that is Jesus alone is what they also received from Christ. And it's the gospel that they are teaching. And so what happens? Paul wins. The gospel wins. Titus is not forced to be circumcised. The legalist didn't win. It was... was It was the law. What they were asking for was not in and of itself bad. They weren't asking them to to violate the law. This is how we can see that it's it's, it's right action with, with bad faith. Because they're not asking them to do anything illegal. They're not asking them to do anything immoral. They're asking them to do something that's a part of God's word. But the law becomes legalistic 
when you think that following that by following the law you earn God's favor that you earn brownie points that you get another little piece of weight to go on your side of the scale when the cosmic cosmic weighing comes to be brothers and sisters hear me following the law the law of God is the word of God and it is good and it is there for our instruction and our benefit but it is not gospel Today, the issue of legalism probably doesn't circle around the question of circumcision. I I will offer that none of you have ever come to me and asked me about this issue. But there are a lot of things that might fall into right action and wrong belief. That might fall into this legalistic trap of thinking that if we do them, we earn brownie points. I have been commending you for months now to take time alone, quiet time, every day to spend with God and read your Bible. Those are good things, and I commend them to you, but do not think that in doing them you earn brownie points. We can think that if we avoid certain sins, it will get us an extra little bit of weight at the end. It might come up and thinking that we have to dress a certain way or listen to certain music to conduct ourselves in a certain way in worship, maybe even coming to worship and helping others. And brothers and sisters, these are all good things. But they will not earn you God's pleasure. They are all things that believers should be doing. But in doing them, If we are doing them thinking that we are going to earn God's favor, that we are going to earn our way into his (laughs) good graces, then we have become legalistic. And here's the thing. We all have this tendency. All humans have this tendency. This, This bent toward legalism is part of original sin. It's part of the fall. It's part of how we are broken as human beings. We are born with a sinful nature in thinking that we have to earn our way to God. And since it is part of original sin and because it is a part of our broken and fallen human nature, this mindset can and does often stick with us even after conversion. But this first picture, this picture of legalism is not how we answer that question. The second picture is the picture of hypocrisy. So Paul talks about these legalists. He talks about these legalists in in Jerusalem. And then he moves on to talk about uh, this incident that he had after this in Antioch with Peter. So he continues to tell his story, and he paints this new picture. This is a picture of hypocrisy. This is the picture that sometimes people try and li- people live into in answering that question. And we can say that, just as we said, that, that legalism is um, having uh, the right action and the wrong belief, we can say that hypocrisy is having the right belief and the wrong action. That hypocrisy is the right belief, but with wrong action. And he lifts up, who else but Peter, as an example of this. See, Peter knows the right thing. 
Peter knows the gospel. He knows the truth. There is that beautiful story in Acts chapter 10. Do you remember Cornelius? Cornelius, who is, who is, who is a Roman uh, soldier, and he, he calls to Peter, and he wants Peter to come see him. And it sounds very strange, but when an angel shows up and says, you're going to call Peter to come to your house, let me tell you what, you call Peter to come to your house. This is, not, this is not in the sermon, but we're going to add this as a general rule. And I know that we're talking about legalism, but, but, but general rule. If an angel shows up and tells you to do something, do it. Can we agree to that? Okay. So Cornelius, Cornelius goes and sins for Peter. And at the exact same moment that this is happening to Cornelius, Peter is on the roof of the house praying. Not as weird then as it would be now pretty normal for them to be on the roof praying if you ever drive by my house and i'm on the roof praying it's been a very bad day but peter is if you ever see me on the roof it's going to be a very bad day but peter is up there and he's praying and god gives him this vision and remember he lowers this cloth and there are all of these animals clean and unclean and he tells to peter to to take up and to eat And Peter says, but they're they're unclean. And God says, don't call unclean that which I have made clean. And because Peter is Peter and he's a little hard-headed, God has to show him a couple of times. And then the message from Cornelius comes. This this Gentile, this non-Jew, this non-believer. Will you come to my house? And Peter gets it. He realizes what God has been telling him. And he goes. That's, that's Acts chapter 10. It's five chapters before the, the council in Jerusalem. It's before this visit of Paul and Barnabas and Titus to Jerusalem. It's before this trip that Peter takes to Antioch. Peter knows the right thing. And he was doing the right thing. Paul tells us that when he comes, when he comes to Antioch, and, and just so we're clear, if you were reading and it says Cephas, Cephas is Peter. I know that that can be a little confusing. Cephas is Peter. It says, well, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He regularly ate with the Gentiles. He had been eating with the Gentiles. He comes to Antioch. And it's important for us to remember, Antioch is one of the first churches where the majority of the converts are not Jews. The majority of the converts, the majority of the faithful are Gentile-born. And so he comes, and he's eating with them, and he's, he's sharing the table fellowship with them. I, I don't think, I spent a long time this week trying to come up with something that was analogous in our modern culture to what table fellowship was to first century Jews. And try to come up with something that would be as shocking to an observant first century Jew as to see another observant religious Jew sit down and share tableship with a Gentile. Table fellowship with a Gentile. And brothers and sisters, if you can think of something, let me know. I could think of nothing that would, in our day and age, be that shocking. Because see, table fellowship, it was more than just having somebody over for dinner, right? It was about accepting them. It was a sign of acceptance and approval of them. 
This is why why the religious leaders are so appalled that Jesus shares the table with sinners and tax collectors. Because in sharing the table with them, Jesus is saying, I approve of you as a person, not as a behavior. Jesus always calls people to repentance. He always calls people to leave their sin behind. But he says, I approve of, of, of your existence. I approve of your being that you are, that you exist. And so in eating with Gentiles, Peter has been extending this table fellowship to them. He's saying, yep, you're one of us. We're in this thing together. We're part of the body of Christ together. I am the left hand, you are the right. Got that back. He's been doing it. He knows it's the right thing. He knows that this is the gospel. For the love, truly here, the love of God, God had given him a vision that this is what the gospel was. He knows it. And yet, when the folks come from James, he stops doing the right thing. He stops living out the gospel. He allows the cultural pressure of other people, the fear. Paul tells us that it's fear that causes Peter to act this way. Because he feared those of the circumcision party. And so he withdraws and he eats only with other Jews. He stops living out the gospel. He stops doing the right. He still believes it. But he stops doing the right thing. His actions are wrong. Paul calls his actions hypocrisy. Man, it causes all sorts of trouble in the church in Antioch. Even Barnabas, Paul tells us, even Barnabas stops eating with the Gentiles. Barnabas, who had been who? He was the companion with Paul and Titus to Jerusalem to fight this fight. See, the implication becomes that the Gentile believers aren't fully accepted by God. I'm not going to fully accept you because God doesn't fully accept you. And this is what we do when we throw up these barriers in our own lives. And we do it, don't we? There are people that we don't like to share the table with. Sometimes there are a class of people, right, that just aren't like us. Sometimes there are family members. We just got through the holidays. The umpteen stories that are published at Thanksgiving and Christmas, how to deal with your crazy uncle. But when, when, when Peter refuses to fellowship with him, when we refuse to fellowship with fellow believers because they don't look like us, because they don't talk like us, because they don't sound like us, because they don't speak our, our language, when we refuse to fellowship with fellow believers in Christ, what we are saying is, I don't fully accept you because deep down inside, I don't believe that God fully accepts you. That's the implication of Peter's actions to the Gentiles. Peter knows better. His actions are wrong. You know, today, it's, it's probably not issues of table fellowship. I have a hard time imagining somebody making guess who's coming to dinner in 2021. But there are all sorts of ways that you can believe the right thing and do the wrong. 
How can you claim a Savior that preached good news to the poor and ignore the poor? How can you preach Christ and live in sexual sin? How can you preach Christ and live in pride? How can you preach Christ and hate your neighbor? How can you preach Christ and live only for yourself? You know, it's not legalistic to confront sin and hypocrisy. Paul does it right here to a Peter, to his face. I love that. I confronted him to his face. We could do, you stand with a lot more confronting to people's faces and a lot more talking, a lot less talking about them behind their back. But if we're going to confront somebody over their sin and their hypocrisy, it's got to be done in love and it's got to be done within the bounds of Scripture and it's got to be done within the bounds of the Christian community. So we have these two pictures, legalism and hypocrisy. The third picture is the picture of faith. The third picture is the picture of faith. This is the picture that, that, that Paul holds up first to Peter and to us. Faith is, is right belief with right behavior. Right belief with right behavior. It's not faith plus anything. It's faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Talk about justification. It's a big word. Paul uses it four times here, just in verses 16 and 17. I'm going to offer you this uh, definition of justification. I'm borrowing this from David Platt, who's the former head of the mission board, International Mission Board. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gracious act of God. We are not at work in justification. God is at work alone. You know, if we aren't careful, we can end up accidentally telling people, if you do this thing, if you pray this prayer, then you are saved. And in doing that, what we're doing is we're telling them that it's still by a work of their own hand. See, faith is not a work that we muster up in a moment when the music is great and the chord progression is just right and we feel something and the preaching has been fantastic and so sin is beat back just enough so that we can grab on. So that we can do something. No, faith is evidence of grace. Justification is a gracious act that we need him to take for us. Justification is a gracious act of God by which God declares. By which God declares. Again, it's God that is at work. No one else can declare you justified. Not yourself, not me, not a priest. One of the fundamental objections of the Protestant Reformation, priest declaring people justified. Only God can declare you justified. See, justification is an act. It's not a process. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is the growing in holiness. But justification is an act. A once and for all can't lose it judgment from God by which God declares a sinner a sinner oh this is the biggie we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners do we I don't 
Paul didn't. And Paul thought he was great. He thought he was doing all of these great things for God. He was serving God. He was, he was a righteous Pharisee. He was an enemy of God and of God's church, no matter how much he argued that he was serving God. See, Paul thought that he was good until he met Jesus. It was in that meeting of Jesus that he realized that he was the chief of sinners. That title that he takes on for himself. It was in the meeting of Jesus that he realized that he was the chief of sinners. See, all of our supposed goodness amounts to nothing more than filth in the sight of a perfect and holy God. We can think that we're good. We can think that we're awesome, in fact. We can hold ourselves up. I am fantastic. I have never drank a drop of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never looked at a woman that wasn't my wife. I've never, thank God I am not like that man over there. We can think that we're good. But that goodness is nothing in the sight of a holy and perfect God. And here we come to this. A question, a hard, hard question. If you think that you are good, if you think that you are good, if you find yourself saying, thank God I am not like that man over there, you have to ask yourself a question. Have you met Jesus? Because it was not until Paul met Jesus that he understood who he was in the sight of God apart from Jesus. It is so easy for us to think that we are great and that we are fantastic. But if you have not been and are not convicted every day of your sin and of your sinful nature and of your total dependence upon Christ, you have to ask yourself this question right now, this second. Have you actually met Jesus? Because my fear is that no matter how much you think you have, no matter how long you've been coming to church, how many, how many times you've read your Bible, if you are not awoken every day with the conviction of your own sin, you haven't met Jesus, you do not know him, and when the trumpet sounds and we are called home, Jesus will look at you and say, I do not know declared a sinner righteous. A declaration of not guilty. Solely through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else than faith in Jesus Christ. You know, faith is not knowledge. It's not knowing who Jesus is. There are a lot of people who know who Jesus is. Scripture tells us that the demons know who Jesus is, but they don't have faith because they don't trust 
I can know that the bungee cord is going to catch me at the end of the fall. But until I jump off the bridge and trust the bungee cord to catch me, I don't have faith in the bungee cord. And let me assure you, I don't have faith in the bungee cord. That's why I've never gone off the bridge. I know it. I've seen the math. I know how it works. But none of that head knowledge means I have faith. You can have all of the head knowledge in the world. You go out around here today. You go out and you ask everybody you meet, do you know who Jesus is? And nine out of ten of them will tell you he is the son of God who came to die for our sins. And yet we know that 69% of them are lost and going to hell. Head knowledge does not equal faith. Somebody has to pay for your sin. Either you have to pay for it or Jesus has to pay for it. It's one or the other. And brothers and sisters, the debt of our sin is too big. We cannot pay it. Christ alone can pay it. Only he can pay it. Only he has paid it. And it's when we trust that that debt has been paid that our lives are changed. It's when we meet Jesus and we see who he is, we understand who we are and what he has done for us that we are changed and we are alive in Jesus. Galatians 2.20 is a verse that has meant a great deal to me for a very long time. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I no longer live. The me that was before Christ is dead. Crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by trust in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. God's pleasure in you is not based on you. And thank God for that. I know some of you. I know me. I am so thankful that God's pleasure in me is not based on me and based on what I have done. But rather it is based in Christ's performance. Christ's sacrifice for me. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of Christ. That is the gospel that saves. That is the gospel that frees. That is the gospel that allows us to sing to our Lord and Savior. Our hymn of invitation is going to be hymn number 294.